Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to my podcast. Today's guest is a um, conversation about uh, becoming the youngest partner. Uh, senior partner. A senior yeah, partner yeah, yeah. as a barrister, 24 years of age. Yeah. Transitioning from that kind of lifestyle into an entrepreneur property there's a there's a fund uh, a fund t- uh, attached to it we were just talking about cars and so no doubt we can talk about that and just life in general sure. um so anyway roy thank you very much for your time thanks and for having me i'm looking forward to this this great conversation mate. likewise likewise now thanks for having me it's a, it's a pleasure to be here so um i've said this to a lot of my podcast guests i'm 36 years of age even though i don't look it and when I was younger, there was no such thing as, yeah. as podcasts. Yeah. And had there been, I think it would have given me a bit of shape, a bit of direction. Because to be honest, I was a complete flop at school. I mm. had no direction. I hated school. And I was one of these kids thinking, when I come out of school, I have no idea what I want to do. And I believe in life, you either have your own plan or you find yourself becoming someone else's plan. Sure. And I found myself going down the route of, what my mum and dad wanted me to do, mm. which was fair enough at the time. They were trying to look out for me. They loved, obviously loved me, but it was definitely not the path I wanted to take. Mm. So now my pledge is to interview go-getters, entrepreneurs, athletes, people in music, people in arts and crafts, to help inspire the younger demographics. So I think the conversation I'm about to have with you is going to do exactly that. Sure. So if you want to introduce yourself and maybe give a bit of background about you know your, your start in life, I'm really intrigued to hear about the 12 rules of success, but that might be a bit premature. So let's talk about yeah, just sure. the start of your sure, journey. Sure. So yeah, I was, I was born in, uh, in West London. I'm a shepherd's bush boy. Uh, um, yeah. Grew up in, in West London, raised by my mum, my you know, mum and dad separated when I was quite young. Um, she raised me and my sister went to state school. Um, nothing remarkable about my upbringing, just a typical normal upbringing. Very early on, I was I was hooked on um, listening to my motivational tapes, and that was a big difference, right? So I've written a book called "Didn't Get the Memo," and I mean, we'll probably talk about that later on. But it was about me. Have I didn't tune into what society said I could or couldn't do because I was listening to my motivational tapes as a twelve-year-old boy. I was, you know, reading Aristotle, Publius Cyrus, um, Seneca as a kid. So. My philosophy was being, I, I had a philosophy since a 12-year-old kid. So I always knew that I could go on and do, well, I always believed I could go on and do whatever I wanted to do, really. And there was no limitation. So with that in mind, roll on a few years, you know, I competed as an athlete. Um, you know, got a Great Britain record under my belt um, as an athlete. I went on to qualify as the youngest senior partner in the country. Bear in mind, single parent family, state school, um, nothing special about my upbringing but I suppose I was defying the you know convention and against the odds and was doing all right you know I, I call it achievement with a small eight so I did that set up the company 24 year old kid effectively running this law firm did that for a bit then handed the firm over to my sister crossed over to being a barrister did well there um, did that for a bit I thought okay reinvent myself crossed over went out raised 50 million quid um, start doing property, did that for a bit. Then when I, you know, find myself now raised hundreds of millions, gone out there and going again. So literally just kept reinventing myself because it was time to reinvent myself. So there's nothing difficult about it, nothing remarkable about it. And listening to your introduction, actually, when you were talking about sort of flopping at school, or it's not, you didn't say flopping at school, but sort of. I very not, much not was really, a flop. <laughs> I was a flop. <laughs> but not, you know, but that for me tells me that you are well poised to do well. So it doesn't surprise me that you're here, if I'm honest with you. If you were 
a goody goody and did really well at school, it would surprise me more if you were sat there. From from what I'd learned, so I studied success as a kid. I was really interested in success, successful people. Surrounded myself by them throughout my my younger years. Whatever opportunity I could, millionaires, billionaires, just learning. I could see that were common traits. So all that I'd read about as a kid. I was seeing it play out and I was seeing these common traits. So even though I supposedly got the memo in, you know, I went and became a barrister and did everything the professional way, school, university, um, you know, qualifications, good job. I always knew that to unlock real success, there was a different way. And I had to sort of unlearn everything I knew. But because I was tuning into this stuff as a kid, I knew what to do immediately. So when I pivoted from the bar as a barrister to go and raise 50 million quid. I gave myself six months, did it in four months, but I knew I'd do it. I didn't throw a barbecue when I did it. Like, we're here, you know, because I expected to do it. Um, and you sat there, as I say, I would have expected you to have done really well because of your background and upbringing. And that's what I'm trying to get out to people out there. doesn't matter where you started. The fact that you probably think you've got the... The, the shitty end of a stick. I don't know if we're allowed to say that on here, man. I don't of course. Know. Okay. Yes, we're well, fine. Shitty end of a stick. Right, yeah. Because, you know, because you've got the shitty end of the stick, the chances are you're probably going to do much better if you harness it the right way. If you've done really well as a goody-goody, done well through school, you'll do okay. But you're not going to break barriers. You know, you're, gonna, you're really going to do okay. You're going to settle that mediocrity. Those who do phenomenally well, from my experience, from what I've studied and what I've learned, are the ones that didn't have a great start because they've got that special something in them. So that's my, that's probably a lot more than you wanted to hear, didn't it? You know, banging on for ages. <laughs> okay, so um, I do resonate with the fact that a lot of people that I speak to, from athletes to entrepreneurs to people in music, a lot of them have come from kind of the quote unquote nothing mm -hmm. or very from a very kind of humble beginning yeah. and then they've turned themselves into like almost a superstar. Yeah. Um, there are a few people, though, have got a bit of a textbook background mm -hmm. and then suddenly they've become also very, very successful. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, you know, qualifying as a barrister. Mm -hmm. I mean, that if someone said to me, Steve, you're going to become a barrister one day, I was like, there's no way because that I just it doesn't doesn't register in my mind. Sure. So you've got to be pretty fucking smart to become to become a barrister. People say that. Um, don't get me wrong. You can't be an idiot. But you don't have to be Einstein. You know, there are many barristers who are not particularly... I don't consider myself to be particularly intelligent. You know, my, I've got kids who are brighter than me. My kids are brighter than me. But it's just knowing the rules. I just played the rules. I knew the rules. Get in there, follow the process. You know, you, you do A, B, C, you get your qualification, you move on. You put the work in, you learn it, you move on. It's not rocket science, but I think those who are on the outside looking in think, oh, wow, you must be really clever. No, not at all. I don't think so. Um, and I think there's a myth about a lot of these professions that the professions are happy to hold on to. And many people who are barristers or accountants, they make themselves feel good by saying, yes, you've got to be very clever. It's very hard. No, it's not. It wasn't that. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't a stroll in the park, but it's not particularly difficult. You know, trying to live on, you know, 60 quid a week, that's difficult. Going through the qualifications to become a barrister, just follow the process, man. What's so difficult about that? Do as you're told. It's not rocket science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. Barrister, like, why, why, why pursue that career? Yeah, so as a kid, um, I used to watch a program called LA Law and <laughs> Blair Underwood, yeah. right? The black guy on there, he always used to wear like these cool suits, got the girls, had the cars, stand up in court, the showman. I thought, I want a bit of that. I'm afraid that's as deep as it is. It's very uh, superficial, not very highbrow, right? But that's, that's, that's all it was. I was just fascinated by being in the courtroom, cross-examining police officers, 
you know, I grew up in Shepherd's Bush. I had friends. I had, you know, sort of distant family members, people who were getting in trouble a lot of the time. And I thought, you know, I want to be out there representing these guys, being that protector, arguing, fighting on their behalf and trying to fight on behalf of those who can't speak for themselves. So that was the real alert to me. Um, and I'd go down and, you know, I'd watch sitting in the, the, the public gallery at the Old Bailey, looking at the barristers swanning around their wigging gowns and, you know, thinking, yeah, oh, I fancy a bit of that, you know. And, and I was met, I met, uh, my mentors back then when I was sort of 15, 16 and they were barristers but they were lads if you like you know they didn't speak with plums in their mouth and that was my perception of a barrister yeah, you know, members yeah. of the jury and don't get me wrong there are many like that but the ones who I've met were one was an ex-coal miner the other one was um, you know from Kilburn you know right rough and tumble kind of guys and I'm thinking blimey they're just like me and they're doing it. So, you know, and that's what it was. So there's no rocket science behind it. But that there was a real allure um, to the bar for me because of what it represented. There was money. I like money, right? I liked money back then. So there was a pull of money. There was that position of power. There's real power when you're in the courtroom. You know, you are the star of the show, effectively. And you're cross-examining a, a witness. or a, And it was the police officers at the time. You know, I thought, you know, to me as a young person, I had a... a an impression of police officers sort of bullying people on the street. That doesn't really, okay, don't get me wrong. I'm sure it happens, right? But it's not as commonplace as people might think. And the, the idea of being able to challenge these police officers and me have the upper hand in the courtroom, speaking out for the guy who can't speak for himself, I thought, yeah, I'm up for that. So that was the, the big pull so, for me. So you were uh, in criminal? I was a criminal defence barrister, yes. Yeah. So murders, blood and guts, murders, pretty much, yeah, back to back for God knows how many years, yeah. Um. Part of the reason why I know a little bit about it is uh, 22... Uh, 22 do, you, do, you a, do you need a lawyer present before you start? No, okay. no, oh, okay. no comment. <laughs> uh, 22 <laughs> old buildings, Lincoln's Inn, yeah. not criminal. Yeah. I was a barrister's clerk ah, for a little you? while. Yeah. All oh, right, okay. Yeah. Um, okay. What was his name? So many years ago now, I'm 36, but uh, a guy called Alan, I forget his name, but he was the... Uh, Head of Chambers, was he? Yeah, yeah, clerk. yeah, and I was I was in there for, for some time. The only reason, well, part of the reason why I left it is because I had a motorbike accident in 2005, split my kidney open, was in hospital, Ooh. and I was laying there thinking, I don't really want to do this, like yeah. this, this barrister's clerking yeah. thing. I went from a building site to doing that, and a friend of mine come over and saw me. He said, look, I think you'd be a really good salesperson at this, this firm. I was like, sales? Oh, nah, it's not for me. Yeah. He said, no, honestly, I think you could do really well. Yeah. Took a leap of faith and that's the avenue I went down. So had a little stint in that whole like, kind of law sure. uh, environment. Yeah. And um, quite, a, quite, a, quite a weird world, I would say, from, 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 from where I was sitting at the time. Sure. And, and it wasn't, you know, it was a weird world from, from where I was sitting until I, until I was introduced to it, if I'm honest with you, because it's, it's a preserve um, for those who are in the know. You know, historically, it's for, it was for the wealthy individuals. And it hasn't changed that much over the years, albeit in more recent time, you, it's more accessible to those from low incomes and so on and so forth, because they're seeing, you know, people like myself or people who before me who have done it, who've come from humble backgrounds thinking I can do it too. But until then, it really was, I'd never met a lawyer as a kid. Other than Blair on TV, you know, every Thursday night, I think it was nine o'clock, right? Um, other than that, I didn't, I've never seen a lawyer up close and personal, never met one, never touched one. My family, my immediate family never got involved in the law. We didn't know one, but I still wanted to be one. So when you don't know it, there's a mystique about it. But when you sort of get involved and you start looking, you think, hold on a minute, they're just like me and you, you know? So yeah, so that was, that was me in the bar. So, so um, I believe everyone in this room, everyone on the face of the planet is 
the same as far as what I'm about to say, which is a salesperson. Yeah. Whether you're raising kids, whether you're raising money for property projects, yeah, whether yeah. you're in a court courtroom, yeah. you're conveying your message. Absolutely. And you're trying to get people to come way come round to your way of thinking. Absolutely. The definition of a sale is the transfer of enthusiasm mm -hmm. if you get people enthusiastic mm -hmm. about your point of yep. view your product or your service your brand yep. they're more likely to kind of take action on what you're saying so you must have learned a lot in the courtroom especially defending people yep. who might have been in very very deep waters yep. and trying to convert the yep. the jury and also yep. the, the prosecution and then transitioning that mindset that skill set into raising hundreds of millions for yep. property so yep. tell me about this the synergy between between those, those yeah. two? I mean, that's a good question. You know, I always um, say to people, I was in the sales business as a barrister. And I, I just used to sell freedom. You know, I get it wrong. He gets a life sentence. I get it right. He goes home. The skills of speaking to a jury, you have to be pretty astute, I suppose, you, because there's, there's no feedback. They're not going to say, no, I'm not with you there. I'm, I don't fancy that, what you're saying. You've got to try and read what these 12 individuals are saying. Not only you've got to persuade them, but you've got to try and recognize that frown, that sort of grimace, that kind of, you know, nod. The, and you're just trying to read these 12 individuals. You've got no idea. Can't speak to them. Can't get any feedback. But you've got to be quite intuitive. You've got to try and work out what's what. Also, I think where the real skill crosses over as a trial lawyer is that you have to see both sides of a coin. When looking at deals or trying to move it, do anything nowadays... What I realize in the commercial world is that most people see things from their side and their side only. As a criminal barrister, there's no point in me seeing it from, from, from my client's side. If my client, there's no point in me sitting down with my client and saying, yep, yeah, really good point. Yeah, oh, that's really good. Understand that. Let's go there and run with it because we get into court and I haven't seen what the prosecution are coming with. My client goes to prison for the rest of his life. So my real skill and ability is seeing it from your side. Right. So every time I'll go into a deal, I'm not seeing it from my side. I'm seeing it from your side. And if I can deal with every objection you're likely to have, you may not even have thought about it first. But if I can see it before you do, I can deal with it and I can close you. And that is the real ability that I have as a, as, as a trial lawyer that I bring into the commercial world. I'm seeing things from both sides. Not many people are able to do that. Yeah, it's a very good uh, mindset and characteristic yeah. to have. I still think it's quite mad that especially in the criminal side of stuff, not so much civil because it's, it's mm. done in, in a different way, but, you know, sometimes, I know there's, there's black and white, you know, people are, are guilty and, they, and yeah. you know, they're going to go down, but then there's people in the balance where mm -hmm. it's a matter of opinion mm -hmm. and if it sways that way, person's let off mm -hmm. and they go about their life mm -hmm. and if it goes that way, it literally changes life forever. I yeah. mean, they could get 5, 10, 15, 20 years or whatever yeah. it yeah. may be and, isn't that a lot of pressure to have on your shoulders? It's a lot of pressure, um, but you're a professional, right? So the pressure you learn to, deal, to, to, to live with, it was a, a lot of pressure for me. You know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night. You, you, can't, you can't relax when you're doing a trial. Before you do a trial, in the middle of a trial, until you've given your closing speech, you're always thinking of new points. You know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night, thought of a point. You know, I'll be sat here with you. I'll be thinking, okay, I just thought of a point there. As soon as the interview had finished, I'll be writing a point down. So you, you, you're always thinking, I need to get the result. Not necessarily I need to win, but I need to make sure I go out there and perform to the very best of my ability. And if that means going out there and dying on my feet, because I'm really trying my hardest, then so be it. But you've got to make sure that your client gets their best going court. As you say, 
They get a life sentence if I get this wrong. I can't afford to go on a jolly up at night and not read the papers. But some people do, right? But certainly for me, I was able to look every single client in the eye knowing I gave it my very best shot. And if they get convicted, so be it. You know, there's nothing I can do about that. If they're acquitted, again, so be it. I don't throw a barbecue. I'm not there as an administer of of justice. I'm there to administer the best possible defense for my client. And however it ends up, it ends up. As long as I've done my bit, it's out of my hands. I know you can't give details because mm. obviously you're a professional man, sure. but if you can give the idea of one scenario in court where you thought, Jesus, this is a really hairy moment where the client might have done X and it looked like it was all against that person, but there was a scenario where you had to be at the best of you, mm. bring the best of your ability forward, where mm. you swayed the whole entire room and you, you got, the, got the result. I remember representing a, a client who was was charged with on trial with an attempted rape of his mother right um yeah right so and it was an interesting case it was um it, yeah it was it was a really odd case and that was probably that was a case where you know I got him off that particular uh, count um and there were a couple of other he went down on a really minor account but that was a case where I thought wow this could I have to perform my best, you know, which I always have to do. Um, but I wasn't quite sure um, what justice would look like in that case. So, you know, I can't really say much more than that. But uh, yeah, you know, again, I, I, it's not for me to dilute with a dilute my application because I have a particular view about a particular client or what they may or may not have done. And in fact, in many cases, I would say to juries, you know, you don't have to like my client. And in times, uh, times I've said to Jura, I don't even like my client, you know, because it's not for me to have a view. <laughs> I've just got to go out there and give it my very best shot, my very best shot. And that's what I did 100% every single time. And there are times when there have been results where you think, wow, <laughs> it's gone for you and you thought it would go against. And, and sometimes it goes the other ways. But, you know, the, I take comfort from the fact that juries, I think we have got probably the best legal system in the world, if I'm honest with you, in, in the UK. And juries tend not to get it wrong they tend not to get it wrong i think they're more likely to acquit those who should have been convicted than to convict those who should be acquitted so i think we've got a good system i have confidence in the system and when you go out there as a barrister i think your obligation is to do the very best you can but you can't really worry about it you've got to give it everything and if it goes against the way you think it should go so be it you know i said i've had wins where i shouldn't have won and i had losses where i thought gotta get off this you know um, I didn't think the conversation was going to be like this, but, yeah, yeah, now, exactly. but, but, but now we're on it. I find it really fascinating and very interesting. So I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate. Sure. This is not me to ag yeah, antagonize, yeah, 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 but yeah. I'm just trying to do a bit of professional verbal sparring. With sure. So, okay. You say the, uh, the legal system is, mm -hmm. is, is pretty, pretty mm -hmm. good. And mm -hmm. I, I think I would agree with sure. you, but then look at cases like Prince, Prince Andrew, mm -hmm, right? Mm hmm I mean, if I went to the public right now, mm -hmm. what, go down the street, what, what do you think the, the view on Prince Andrew is? Mm -hmm. Rapist, paedophile, mm -hmm. etc. A lot of people would probably say that. Sure. Now, I don't know whether that's the truth yeah. or not. Mm -hmm. I'm just going on my my experience by talking to people, yeah. family members, friends, etc. I understand. The man looked like he was banged to rights, but maybe because he's a royal, mm. he doesn't get treated in the same way. What would you say about that? Look, there's there's no um, 
arguing that if you can afford to get the very best, you get the very best in your team, right? Um, on his case, did he have the very best? Uh, in fact, I know the, the solicitor that he he, he had um, in the UK. Yeah, he had good lawyers. He had good lawyers. Is it the right result? It's difficult to say. You know, I think there's a real danger, and, and often it happens in cases where the public will have a particular view. Uh, if you were to speak to his family members, as often is the case when the client would come to you and you speak to their family members, they've got a completely different view. So if you were to speak to you know, Andrew's family or anyone in his predicament, they will give you a completely different view. So I think and, until you're in a case and you've seen all the evidence, it's difficult. It really is difficult. You know, it's not me just giving a political answer here, but it's difficult to really have a view um, because it depends on what side you're on. You're going to have that view anyway. If I'd seen the evidence in that case, I could say, do you know what? You're kind of struggling here on the evidence. But without it, it's difficult to say, you know. And I think one thing I have learned over the years is you can't really judge a case until you've read the evidence. Um, and even then, you know, I've done many a trial. I have no idea whether they did it or not. It's because it's it's not your business, you know. It's, it's almost like someone going to the doctor with a sexually transmitted disease. You know, the doctor's got something he needs to cure. He's not going to say, well, what was her name? You know, what did she look like? How many drinks? You know, he doesn't care about that. It's here's the problem. I need to fix it. So until you've got that problem in front of you, it's difficult to say whether or not someone like Andrew had evidence against him or not. It's difficult to say, do you know what I mean? But I, could, I can get the sympathy where you think uh, some people's views may be on it. Uh, but doesn't it concede that he's already kind of done it when he has to pay 50 million quid or whatever it is for, for the lady just to walk away and almost shut maybe, her mouth? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, look, okay. And again, playing devil's advocate, and I suppose I could say that if I had a trial there may be things in a trial that I'd rather the public didn't know, right? It may be something that he, let's just say, for example, on one particular evening, he was drink driving and that was going to come out in evidence. I, I have no idea. It may be worth paying at 15 million quid than the public know that he was drink driving on a particular night because it's about to come out in the trial, right? So it's about balancing out the risk and the reward here. Is it worth paying 15 million quid so people don't know I'll drink driving? in his particular scenario. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So the fact that someone's paid the money doesn't necessarily m mean an admission of guilt. It means they may not want the hassle. They may not want the aggravation. If it was me and someone said to me, let's go to court, um, or you can get rid of it and it costs you a grand for argument's sake, right? I'm just being really silly here. You think, you know what? I'd rather pay the grand not have the aggravation, not have the, the media attacks, not have the social media, not have dragging my family through it. So it's balancing it. And again, not a political answer, but I'm just trying to see things from the other side because there's always two sides to it. You've got to be very careful how things appear because on the face of it, it's very to say, you've paid the money, must be guilty. You know, but I could easily see a scenario where I'd advise a client to say, do you know what? You've got to wait up here. 15 million quid, it all goes away or pay nothing. It may cost you a billion quid for the whole family. You know, so there's bigger issues at play here, especially when you're dealing with a character as high profile as him. So if I were to ask Roy Legister mm. rather than Roy the barrister, mm. just as an individual man, to, we're in a pub, I'm in mm. Drake. Do you believe mm. that he raped the girls and he was guilty? I would, you know, and this is not a question I've ever been asked before. I thought he gave a poor interview. I thought he gave a poor interview. I think he was badly advised. I would never have advised him. When he was saying he wasn't sweating and all that kind of... Lunacy. I would never have advised him to give that interview as his lawyer. You must be crazy. Stay well away from it. There's nothing to be gained. Yeah. There's nothing to be gained from it, right? He was never going to go on there and give a compelling explanation. Everyone says, all oh, right, and that's Andrew's giving the explanation. Let's go home and forget about it. There's nothing to be gained. It's like a no comment interview. Don't give the interview. 
Do I believe he did it? I can't say. I have no idea. And, and you know, I don't really follow this stuff that closely, if I'm honest with you. I don't follow um, <clears throat> sort of, you know, gossip in the media. There was that Amber trial the other day. It was Amber and um, Johnny Depp or whatever. Yeah. I haven't got a clue what it's about. I don't care. You know, there, there's, there's so much that I'm trying to get on with my own life. I haven't got time to follow this stuff. You know, I'd sooner read something which is improving the mind than follow someone else's personality. Ain't my family, ain't my kids. I couldn't give them monkeys. To be honest with you, do you know what I mean? I don't know is the answer to that question. I have no idea. I interviewed uh, a guy called Paul Nicholson. Mm. Uh, he's originally from Liverpool, I believe. He's a developer in Liverpool and then he sort of moved his, uh, most of his concentration to St. Helens. Helens? Right. Mm. Yeah. He's, uh, he's doing really well. And the reason why I say it to you is because you slightly remind me of him because you're both from uh, lawyer, solicitor, barrister's background, sure. and he transitioned into the property world. Mm. And I can quite clearly see that that knowledge, that experience, that mindset can easily help you, yeah. certainly when it comes down to business, but certainly certainly property. How much of an advantage do you think it, it's giving you in, in, in the property world? It's giving me a huge advantage, not necessarily in property. I think life commercially generally. Um because I say it's that ability to see things from the other side. Another real quality skill you have is that I can assess something very quickly. I can tell you that's, that doesn't make sense. So because with, with the law, it's logic. You're using logic. It's logic. So it's if this, then that. If that, then this. And there's a chain of thinking process that will lead you to a conclusion, right? I can tell you what the conclusion is straight away. It may take me some time to explain how I know that's right or wrong, but I know straight away. It's a skill you have when you're on your feet, when you're cross-examining, you know, you're in the old Bailey, you've got a jury looking at you, you've got the media looking at you, you've got a judge looking at you, you've got the deceased family looking at you, you've got the public gallery full of tourists. You learn pretty quickly to assess things quickly. So I know very quickly. Um, I'm not saying I know a good deal straight away, but I know in the process of doing a deal what will work, what won't work very quickly because I can get to the conclusion real quick. Um, and then I can go back with the team and say it won't work. And they'll say, why not? It'll take me a while to articulate it, but I just know it won't work. Give me some time and I'll explain it. But instinctively, you know straight away what's right, what's not. So property itself, I wouldn't say I had a real advantage for property, but for commercial transactions and for life, there's a, that ability to be true to yourself, to be true to what the deal really is. Law is evidence-based. There's no emotion. You know, I'm, I, I don't think... You know, Stephen, I don't really like Stephen because he upset me. I can see Stephen for what he really is based on evidence. Many people can't do that. And again, it's just that whole legal background. Look at a property deal. There's no emotion in it. I'm looking at evidence. Does the evidence stack up or not? If it stacks up, it's a go. If it makes sense logically. If it doesn't, it's a no. I'm not going to not do a deal because the sales agent pissed me off, <laughs> you know, or annoyed me. You know, that's when emotion gets into it. So lawyers are very good at extracting emotion, seeing things for what it truly is, and then moving forward. That's the skill. You said looking at a good property deal. So define a good property deal. Mm. A good property deal for me is a deal where it, it, it gives me the yield that is necessary to satisfy the investors. Um, particularly for me, a good property deal is it enables me to do what I want to do on that asset to satisfy the USP of my company, which is high quality, luxury, affordable homes for those who are on low incomes. That's a good property deal for me. That's a great property deal. So if I can satisfy both, I'm a winner. I'm a winner. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there are many deals I look at. The numbers may stack up. The location's wrong. It's not a good deal for me because I'm not, I'm letting down the tenants. 
I'll make my, my investors happy, tenants lose out. Bad deal. So it's like that Venn diagram. There's got to be that crossover in the middle where it's a big tick for me. That's yeah. a good deal to me. So you're the founder of a brand called Convivia. Convivia, yeah. Um, so do you sell all the units or do you retain as well and cash flow them? Well, we, we, we retain. We don't sell. Um, we have a model where pension funds are interested in what we what we, what we we um, build. So they may end up um, buying, acquiring them from us ultimately. So the what the model is, it's about creating these assets and then you've got the income from it and then we either hold it or we sell it on as as portfolios as, as a package as okay because yeah. i i read an article that you launched a a bond which mm-hmm. was attached to the mm-hmm. property which mm-hmm. was offering six percent mm-hmm. per annum mm-hmm. i think it was a three or five year bond mm-hmm. um i'm just quite curious about that because my mm-hmm. background is raising money for yeah. things yeah. like uh you know mini bonds yeah. and you know uh you know debentures loan yeah. notes that kind of mm-hmm. stuff and I know in the last two years specifically, bond's taken a beating. it's taken a yeah. really tough time because yeah. the FCA, it's not necessarily bond, it's the way you promote it. Yeah, absolutely. So if you exactly. had a if you had a Google absolutely. Google um, campaign going, mm. they would just shut it down if absolutely. you weren't FCA regulated absolutely. or if you weren't uh, approved right. by the FCA. So so so, talk to me about that. Was there any tough times with that? Or oh did God, you have was to, tough times? Did yeah, you have to pivot? Was, had to pivot big time because it was right when when that bond was launched was right in the midst of it all falling down the whole bond sector uh, it was london capital or whatever it was that whole market london and essex it was a yeah, big one yeah there was a big it all went went a bit pear shaped so the bonds market took a bit of a beating so i was right in the middle of all of that so that made it really difficult and then of course i had to pivot again um you know and then go out and get additional fundraising where i actually went and raised that you know the, the big money so it's always pivoting it's always pivoting you know it's never a case of you start at a and you get to z in a straight line it just doesn't happen you know it just doesn't happen but you know i'm i'm used to that now and i recognize that as part of the journey so i know it's going to be a pivot i know that before i set off the journey so when the tough times came you know those i was hospitalized during that time uh, to be honest with you it was a lot of stress um but I worked with it. I knew what was going to happen. You know, you're going to have to pivot. You're going to have to dance. So on the whole bonds market, when that all collapsed, literally, as I was going through it, when I say literally, I mean, we're speaking to lawyers, we're just getting the approval. Um, and then there was a restriction on the um, on, on how you could market it. Then you had to be FCA regulated to market and so on. So those who were promoting the bond could no longer promote. Otherwise, you start breaking the law, right? Something that we just can't do. So I was chasing my tail. And, you know, it's all in the book. Well, to an extent it's written about in the book but and the reason I feature it is because I had to pivot and I was just using it as an example when you think everything's going well and all of a sudden life comes around and gives you a punch right in the middle of your nose you know and you've got to move again you've got to move again but I don't sit down and cry about it I see it as this is part of the process let's go again you know so yeah I had to pivot big time so, so um, when we just started talking about the property stuff mm. and you mentioned about raising 50 million mm-hmm. and then I've seen that you've raised hundreds of millions mm-hmm. since then, mm-hmm. you do say it quite casually, mm. like you're raising 50 quid to go mm. and buy a, 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 mm. a few pints down yeah. the pub. Yeah. 50 million pound mm. is a huge amount of money. I mean, to who? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But to the general public... Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just trying to speak on their behalf. How mm. would someone go about even thinking about raising fifty million pound? Like, what kind of mindset do you need to have? What kind of strategy do you need to have? What kind of belief do you need to have? Good question. Hundred percent belief, total belief. So, the time when I went to raise this, to give you some context, right? I had just bought a property. I was, you know, I had a good six-figure salary at the bar as a barrister. 
Um, I just bought a property, got a fiance. And again, it's in the book. I had a conversation with her and it went something along the lines like this. I said, okay, I'm going to step away from the bar. I'm going to go and raise 50 million quid and do this property thing for this property opportunity. And her response was, well, what do you know about property? And my answer was, well, well, nothing. She said, what makes you think you can raise 50 million quid? She said, you know, you've never even raised a million quid. I said, I know, I know. In fact, it wasn't raising 50 million. I was going to raise 5 million. That was it. So she's like, okay. You know, she's like, you know, we've just bought this, we've just got this place. The place was derelict. I needed to, so I bought this place, derelict property, derelict. When I say derelict, I mean derelict. Um, I've got no more, no income, no savings. I need to move on, but I'm going to pivot. I'm going to go and raise this money. I knew I was going to raise it because I know the rules. And the rules were, if you throw yourself into something, I give it 100%. Um, and, and again, perhaps some more context. As a barrister, it's not unusual. And if you spent some time in a clerk's room, you know what it's like. You get a brief five o'clock in the evening. You look in your pigeonhole, you take your brief, you open your brief, this is your trial for tomorrow. By tomorrow, you need to master the case papers. You need to know what your witnesses are going to say. It, there may be experts you have to cross-examine. You have to become an expert overnight on whatever area it is. I realized again at a pretty tender age, if I can become an expert overnight to cross-examine someone who's dedicated their life to a particular arena, a particular area of expertise, and I can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them in front of a judge, jury, public gallery, the lot of it, imagine if I had a week to learn a subject. God forbid a bloody month. Give me two months, my God. If I can master it in a night and cross-examine an expert, what can I do in a week? Yeah. And that's how I went after the property. I was just trying to learn it. What's the bloody problem, man? If you don't know it, learn it. Yeah. Learn it. Become resourceful on the job. Learn it. Yeah. Learn it. That's one of the things. Don't talk yourself out of it before you learn it. Bloody learn it. Pick up the book. Learn it. So I learn it. And then I knock the doors. And I know failure's a part of it. I know I'm going to get no's fine, man. I'll just keep knocking. I'll keep knocking, keep knocking, keep knocking. Keep learning, keep knocking, keep learning, keep knocking. Someone, you know, resistance is such. You keep pushing. It's going to give way at some point. It may not be after the first push. It's going to give way. But most people think it's going to be a bed of roses. They think they're going to knock and someone's going to open the door and welcome them in. It doesn't happen like that. And that's the mindset of, of the winners that I surrounded myself with over the years. I know they expect resistance as part of the process. So when I get the resistance, that's cool, man. I mean, you know, resistance turns up. I'm flipping welcoming in, man. I've, I've got a, a chair waiting for you. So that's the mindset. I know it's going to happen. Just follow the rules. That's what I did. I kept knocking the doors. Um, I went from five million. One day, you know, I was speaking to the partner, my partners at the time. And I said, you know what? Sod it. Let's go for 50. They go, huh? I said, yeah, let's go for 50. Straight right from there, went from five to 50. Just like that. Raised 50. Imagine if I said, let's go for 500. That's my biggest regret. That's my biggest regret. Because I limited myself at 50. Why did I stop at 50? You know, why do people say, I want to be a millionaire. I want to make a million. Why? Where'd that come from? It's in their heads. And then they've limited themselves to this one million number. Why didn't you say 10, 15, 20? But they limit it to one million. Then they fight their whole life trying to get to a million. All they had to do was say 10. <laughs> and they would have got to eight. Yeah. They limited themselves. I don't limit myself on anything. Well, I'll have a billion pound company in the next 18 months, two years. Fact. Beautiful. There'll be a billion pound company within the next two years. A lot of what you say really resonates with me because it all comes down to stripping everything away, what you just said. It's like the sales environment. Upstairs, we've got the very top floor where all the inbound inquiries for the art pieces that we promote, Richard Hamilton specifically, mm. people come, come through and people have a comfort zone. Mm. They come in. It's like when you go to the gym. 
you know, you go in there, some, not us, but some people go into the gym and think, right, today I can lift this because that's what I'm comfortable to. They won't say that, but that's subconsciously what they're thinking. Absolutely. The personal trainer will come along and goes, we're going to double it today. Yep. And here's the reason why. Yeah. And they put them through hard graft yep. and then the client ends up doing it and yep. they're, they're amazed. Yep. And what we're a bit like when uh, an inbound lead comes through, they might say, oh, I've got 25, 50 grand, 100 grand to invest. Well, we as a personal trainer has got to look to up that because the irony is the higher you go in in the art market, the closest you can get to a masterpiece, actually the safer you are and also the more money you're going to make off, off the back end of it. There you go. So we always say to the salespeople, whatever they comfortably say, within reason, try and double it. Yep. 50 to 100 grand, 100 to 200 yep. grand, half a million to a million. Yep. And here's the reason why. I better remember that when I put a call into you guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so I completely resonate with that. And it's just, it takes the same amount of effort yep. to ask for one pound to a billion pound. It's it just a number and it it's does. just a word. Of course it does. And guess what? Guess how many people are asking for one pound? Everybody. How many people are asking for a billion? Nobody. How many people have got billions trying to give it away? And no one's bloody asking. No one's bloody asking. And then we wonder why we don't push ahead. Because you're not asking the question. We, we talk ourselves out of success. We talk ourselves out of achieving. It's not nobody, it's not, you know, it's not usually anybody else that does it. It's us. It's us. You talk about the comfort. You know, I train hard. I do things every day I don't want to do. Why? That's what that's how you succeed in life. You know, I, I, I train at 5 a.m. in the morning. I don't like training at 5 a.m. in the morning. I hate training. I hate going to the gym. Hate it. I wouldn't do it. I do it at a time when I don't want to do it because that's what life's about. If you want to win, you've got to do the uncomfortable. There's no achievement in comfort. And that's why I say those who got the memo, as I said, you'll do all right because it's comfortable. The real growth is in the discomfort. But every time somebody is about to make that leap, Look at New Year's resolutions, right? Everyone sets these wonderful aspirational goals. The moment it gets uncomfortable, they back off. Oh, not for me. Not, it should, maybe it's not for me. It's not for me. It's too hard. Don't need it. They did not realize that's where it happens. The magic happens after the discomfort. So if you stay away from discomfort, how the hell are you going to succeed? It's like in, you know, in business when you asked, did I have to pivot with the bond? Yes. That was the, that was the discomfort. But I know at the other side of that discomfort, because loads of other people experience the same as I am, but they fall away. I know I now need to push through because all the competition, they're fading away. Every time I come up against a problem with my business model, I'm delighted. Do you know why? Because everyone else has got that problem too. And I know they're going to back off. I know I'm going to stay. And I know I will get the solution. They're going to fall behind. That's life, man. Well, I think there's a big connection between uh, you know training, whether that's Doing a sport, lifting weights, running, whatever mm. it may be, and that and that and that mindset, that trait in, in business. Mm. I box specifically. Mm -hmm. um, I've had sixteen fights. My last fight was in March, and a lot of my podcast guests have been boxers, pro boxers. I've had nice. the likes of um, Johnny Fisher on recently, heavyweight, who's signed up with Joe Joyce. I've had Brian Jennings who fought Klitschko, George Groves. Uh, Ted Cheeseman, O'Hara Davis, Bradley Ski. I mean, I've had a bunch, right. so, so many. And what I love about them is I always say to salespeople, if you want to listen to motivation, listen to a fire because they're in an environment where it's do or die. There isn't someone looking after you yep. or isn't let's give it a half-hearted performance today because if yep. you do, yep. 
the 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 simple scenario is you just lose that fight but the worst case scenario you could die absolutely it really is a fact and and i think that if you can train really fucking hard in the gym Mm. even if you don't want to do it Mm. and even if your goal isn't to become an athlete or to become the world's strongest person Mm. but just to go through that grueling task before the day starts trust me business is going to become much easier how much of that would you support? 100%. Do or die is something I live by, right? In my book, I talk about... I told you I was hospitalized. I mentioned it very briefly. Cut a long story short, in my book, I refer to it as the day I almost didn't die. I thought I was dying. Obviously, I didn't, right? Um, the day I almost didn't die. And at the time, again, I won't bore you with the detail, but I was in this room, it was all chaos, and they're plugging this into me and sticking catheters up me and all sorts. And there's loads of chaos and pandemonium around me. And I'm lying on this bed, not knowing what's going on. And the room just went really quiet, really quiet. And I can hear the doctors, consultants panicking around me. The room just went quiet. And I thought, okay, this is it. This is it. At that time, I thought to myself, all right then, son. This is how I talk to myself, all right, son. You know you love, you love an adventure. Just make sure you don't miss any of it. As you cross over to the other side, just make sure you don't bloody miss it. Just make sure you keep your eyes open. Make sure you can see it all as you cross over. There's only one go at this. I thought, I'm dying. I'm about to go to the other side. So I thought, all right, fine cool, let me just make sure I don't miss it because I've never seen this before. And then all of a sudden, the room starts to get noisy again, noisy again, noisy again. The bloke was pulling out my bits, trying to stick capture up me. He's still there and there's the, the noise is back. The reason I tell that story is I wasn't frightened, right? I wasn't frightened in that moment. I thought I was about to die and I wasn't frightened. In fact, I was quite cool with it. When I came out from that, I thought, if that doesn't frighten me, nothing else will. Nothing frightens me. So that was a big takeaway for me. But the do or die thing. Now, whenever I go after a goal, I will go after it with that do or die. And it's interesting you talk about boxers and what I think about it 100% because if I go for a run and I'm going to go for a hard run, I don't run so much because I've got bad back, but I'd go for a run. My wife hates when I talk like this, but in the morning, you know, it'd be dark outside. I'll lace up my shoes and I'm going for a hard run. And as I lace up my shoes and I look at my front door, I think to myself, this may be the last time I see my front door because I'm prepared to go out there and die in the process of my run if I'm going to do a hard run. In building this affordable housing model that I'm building, I'm prepared to die in the process of doing what I'm doing. If you're not prepared to die as my competitor, get out of the way, I will roll over you. I am prepared to die in anything I'm doing, anything. I will die for it. And that's why when you talk about the boxers, I see it exactly the same way. If you, How you do anything is how you do everything, right? The boxers, there's so many synergies. You know, you've got to get your punches in when you can. You, you, when you fall down, make sure you get back up. So long as you're standing, you may get that lucky punch in. But if you go into that ring and you're not prepared to give it everything, you risk yourself, you risk your health. If I do the same, I risk my, my home, I risk my investors' money. I risk everything. But if I'm prepared to do it until I die and I am, I've got every chance of winning. That's how I go after everything I do. Yeah, powerful, powerful message. Um, Take me back to when you was a kid then, Mm. because another thing that resonates with me is I listened to The Profile of a Champion by George Zadokie Mm -hmm. when I was younger. I was Mm -hmm. about 19 years of age. Mm -hmm. And I heard a couple of 
quote unquote self help books, yeah. personal development books, etc. Yeah. I was a very bad reader when I was younger because mm-hmm. I was shit at school, mm-hmm. ADHD, etc. Mm-hmm. Which I only found out later on in my life, and I couldn't really concentrate on, on reading. I'm mm-hmm. still it's still a struggle for me now, but I like listening to podcasts and audio books, mm-hmm. etc. And when I listened to this guy, the first version, because he's now done the second version. Mm-hmm. It was like powerful. It was like 45 minutes of this guy just talking about becoming basically the best version of you, the mm-hmm. profile of a champion. I just love the title. And then obviously I found uh, Brian Tracy. I also found Zig Ziglar. I found jo- uh, Jim Rohn. I found mm-hmm. uh, Tony Robbins. I mm-hmm. found pff, the list is endless, yeah. you know, and it just kept on going on and on. Mm-hmm. And still today I listen to these people and I listen to more current people with their podcasts now, but I still dip into the old the stuff. Old boys, I, think, yeah, yeah. I think it's great. What was so compelling? Why why did you get hooked on Good that question. kind of personal development content? Yeah. So I grew up listening to Zig. Um, obviously, he was a sales guy. Um, you know, um, see you at the top and all that sort of stuff. And Jim Rohn and Les Brown, those are my three go-to. I think it was the fact that I they made me believe I could do anything with the right type of thinking. They made me realize that there is a process um, you know, Earl Nightingale, um, you know, listen to all these guys, The Stranger's Secret, um, you know, Napoleon Hill, all these guys. But Jim Rohn, they just made me believe that you need to do is just follow the process. You know, Jim Rohn, you know, as a 40-year-old, he, he's, he's skint, you know, and then his chauffe who takes him under his wing and tells him, you know, just you need to just do these things here. Your, your, your bank account is a reflection of how you are, he was told Jim Rohn was. And it's just realizing you're in control of your destiny. You don't have to listen to what, you know, my mum, bless her, got the memo, do this, do that, do the other. But what she was telling me and what most of us are telling our kids and what our schools are telling us, they're, they're, they're setting us up to need for mediocrity. Jim Rohn, Zig Ziglar, Les Brown, they were telling me how to break out of the, out of the atmosphere. And that was a difference. So it just made me feel, hold on a minute, I've got a rocket fuel here. Nothing's holding me back, man. Nothing's holding me back. And that's what, that's the way I live my life. Luckily, you see, most people get on the straight and narrow or discover the principles of success as they move through life. They've either had a bad experience, which catapults them into thinking, you know, I need to wake myself up and follow the right rules here. Or they just sort of discover it later on in years because they've had a pretty good life. I learned it as a kid and applied it as a kid. So it was almost like a study for me. Just apply it. And I started off with, as a 15-year-old kid, you know, 14, 15-year-old kid, maybe a bit young, yeah, probably about 14, 15. And I remember my sister was dating a, a salesman, a good friend of mine still up to now. Um, and he was a sales manager selling, you know, Kirby, the, the, the vacuum cleaners. And he used to give me the tapes, like bootleg tapes. So he was always feeding me my tapes. He was like my dealer, giving me my tapes, right? I've got a new tape, you've got a new tape. You know, I'd listen to this tape and all of his friends were into this like motivational stuff. I don't really believe so much in motivational stuff anymore. I think it's a bit of hype, right? But it was always that you can do whatever you flipping want, man. And I believed it. I was, I was sold. And I suppose when you're living in the bush as a young kid, shepherd's bush that is, as opposed to living in the jungle, um, you're looking for anything. And it could have been a drug dealer that I would, have, would have impressed me. Fortunately, it was these multi-millionaires who impressed me with their tapes and I wanted to have what they had. Yeah, you know, so that's what it was for me. That's what really opened my eyes. I was sold, man. I was a convert, and I was so positive as a kid. But even notwithstanding all of that, I still had my doubts in my mind. Can I really be a lawyer? Don't don't kid yourself, Roy. You know, so even with all that positive upbringing from my tapes and books, listen to them every day. I still do. 
every day. I don't, you know, I've missed the meal. I won't miss my tapes, man, or my, uh, my my motivational. But even with all of that stuff, I still doubted myself. So I know how difficult it is for people to listen to what we're saying. They'll believe it for a, for a moment, but you know, they'll go to bed tonight and think, oh, I can't really do that. You know, so it's not. You've almost got to take a leap of faith, and you've got to be in autopilot to just go with what I'm saying. Don't second guess it. Don't try and be too intellectual in how you approach it. It's almost like believing in God, right? You just need to believe in what I'm saying. Take a risk. Believe in yourself. Believe. Try and fail. Try and fail. You know, I say to, I've got people within my company who are not particularly confident. I set them a task. You're not failing enough. I need you to fail. I want you to go out there and fail. Because what the funny thing is, they'll realize, okay, I've got nothing to worry about. And they won't fail. And I realized, hold on a minute, that was, it was in their head that was holding them back. It's not real. So most of the stuff that's holding us back isn't real. It's just in here. Yeah. You know, so it's just overcoming all that stuff. But anyway, I'm rambling on now, but you, do you know what I mean? But I, um, books and tapes for me was just letting me, it was just unleashed that potential. I knew I had it. Um, everyone's got it in them, but it was just unlocked for me. And I believed in it and I went with it. I had nothing to lose. I'm a 12 year old kid, right? I've got to lose. I've got a mortgage. I can take a risk. And luckily I was, I could play around with it. That was it. I was making a point as a 14, 15 year old. So I would, I attacked one homework. I was getting C's, D's. And I thought, you know what? Let me just try it on one homework. Give it everything I've got. Lo and behold, got an A. Cool. All right, fine. You put that one away. I try another homework. I'm getting C's and D's on. Got an A. Cool. Right. Put that one away. Another one. Got an A. Hold on a minute. I can influence the outcome of this stuff. It's not the teacher's fault. It's not my mum's fault. It's not the flipping Labour government's fault. It's my freaking fault. If I put the work in, I can have an impact on the output. And that's how I've lived my life. I don't worry about race. People say, you know, I'm always often asked, did you find it difficult as a black person getting ahead? I didn't bloody notice. Do you know why? It makes no difference to me. <laughs> I, can, I don't care who's out there. You can be as racist as you want. If I've got the best deal in the world, you're going to give me the money. So it's down to me. It's not down to you. I don't care what you think about me. I'm in charge here. And if I take full responsibility, there's no excuses. If, if it doesn't go well, it's my fault. And that's one of the chapters in my book, Excuses. Now, many of us have these excuses that we hang on to. And we're happy to clutch onto these excuses if we're falling short of the mark. Lose your excuses, man. Because the moment you've got excuses, you can't change what's happening out there. If you take responsibility for it, you can impact that. Bond market goes kaput. I don't go and cry in the corner of a room in a fetal position. The bond market's gone. It's down to me now. What am I going to do about it? Take control, take responsibility. And that's what I do in my life. I think uh, Zig Ziglar might have been him or Jim Rohn said, you can either react or respond. Or you can respond. There you go. And, exactly. and Jim Rohn. Yeah. yeah. It's a power, that, that one thing is so powerful. Absolutely. And uh, it's always stuck in my mind. So this is a perfect segue into like your book mm. and then also... Because I haven't been plugging it so far, it's whatever. <laughs> the, the 12 Rules of Success by Yourself. So talk to me about those two things. Do you know what? Are, are they rules of success? There's no quick fix. This stuff is so simple in a way, right? You know what it's like. This success stuff is so simple. Um, there's no magic about it. We all know what to do. And I give talks at school and kids say, now, how do I do this? Look, you know, you know what to do. If you want to get good grades, kids, you know what you need to do. Work. Do the work. But what we're all often looking for in life is trying to find out how we can not do the work, not put the time in, but get the result we want. Diets. When people are looking at diets, all they're saying is, you know, that diet didn't work for me. All they're saying is, I didn't put the work in. 
And all they're looking for is a quicker, easier way to lose the weight, but still eat what they want and sit on the couch. That's what they want. Yeah. You want to lose weight, stop putting stuff in there and exercise. Simple. You don't need a rocket scientist to tell you this, right? So the rules of success are very simple. In my book, I'm not saying anything that's not been said before. I'm probably playing it down a bit here, but I'm just being real about it. It's just a different approach. So what the memo tells us to do, for example, with failure, don't fail, don't fail. It's ingrained in us as kids, failure is bad, failure is bad. No, 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 failure is bloody good, man. Failure is good. You know, I had a conversation with my five-year-old the other day, failure is good. I say to him, do you know how many times daddy fails on a daily basis? I want failure because if I'm failing, I'm pushing boundaries. If you don't fail, you don't move ahead, right? So the memo tells us don't fail. I'm saying you must fail. You need failure. Failure is feedback and it sounds very, you know, cliche and what have you. But if you, unless you've got failure, you don't know what works, what doesn't work. So failure is good. So you got to change your attitude to failure. The, the US is better than us. Yeah, definitely. Us, right? So if I fail at something, it's great. What now do I need to try now? Bond didn't work, failed. Try something else. You know, so it's just fail. So failure is one thing. How you, how you perceive failure. Risk is another thing altogether. You know, it's almost like, I, don't know, I did economics as a kid and you've got your de demand curve and your supply curve, but the older you get, the less appetite you have for risk. The reality is the older you get, the more wisdom you've got. You're more able to do things than you were when you're younger. But the, that, that gap gets wider and wider. Your appetite for risk goes down <laughs> and your knowledge goes up. What's happened to me as a barrister? I know the rules. Now's the time to, to take the jump because I've got the knowledge and the wisdom. Okay, risk is it's very risky, but you've got the knowledge and wisdom. You know, so it's just simple things. Let's use our head here. But the memo says, no, 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 you can't do that. You've got your mortgage, you've got 2.4 kids, you've got a nice lawn. You know, that let's not upset the apple cart. You've got to upset the apple cart and it needs to be uncomfortable to grow. So risk. Resolve. Don't stop. If you're going to start something, don't stop. You know, at, at school, why is it that most of us will take our exams and we'll get exams when we leave school? The reason is because the teachers are there to make sure you go to school every day. They're there to make sure you sit the exams. Your parents are there to make sure that you go to school. And lo and behold, most of us pass the exams. Why does that not happen when you go to, you know, higher education? Because there's no obligation now. So when it gets uncomfortable, you say, it's not for me. When you did your GCSE, you can't say, it's not for me. I don't fancy mm. it tomorrow. You better get yourself there. And lo and behold, the fact that you stayed, <laughs> guess what happened? You got the result. It's not about how clever you are or it gets harder. It's just you have, you've got choice. You've got discretion as you get older. And that's why aspirational goals, you struggle because you've got discretion. If it's a desperational goal, there's a chapter in my book, Aspirational versus Desperational. And it's saying that with a desperation goal, your doctor says to you, do you know what, Steve, if you don't stop eating, blah, blah, or if you don't start training, you're, you're a goner in two weeks. I bet you get yourself to the gym and you don't put that next burger in your mouth. Yeah. Right? Aspirational goal, however, is different. You've got discretion. I'm going to climb Everest. Well, that's nice when you're sat on the sofa with your girlfriend next to you with a cup of Milo, uh, you know, with, with the heat in at 24 degrees uh, on, in, in the room. You can have the ideas. The moment you go out there in the first morning for training... There's no fanfare to welcome you. It's freezing. It's chucking it down with rain. You think, nah, I don't fancy it. It's because you didn't stay. Mm. <laughs> you didn't stay. If you likened it to when you were doing your GCSE, you had to stay. So it's that mindset, you know, it's, it's, it's treating your goal like a professional. And it's, um, I can't remember the name of the book, War of Art. 
uh, where he talks about resolve and it's like you need to act like a professional and doing what you're doing. So if you're going after, if you want to climb Everest, you need to treat it like it's your job. You need to show up. It's no magic. Just show up, man. So that's one of the chapters. Um, truth. Be honest with yourself. Don't say, oh, I'm big boned. You might be fat. You might be fat. If you're big boned, you don't have to fix it. If you're fat, which is the truth, you've got a problem. Be honest with yourself. You know, but, but most, many of us lie to ourselves. Oh, I don't really want riches. You know, riches, wealth is the, is the root of all evil. It's because you ain't got none, man. You know, so we, we try and satisfy ourselves that we don't want certain things because we can't have it. How are you ever going to get it? If you lie to yourself, that's another chapter. Um, you know, there's, there's more. I mean, I can't remember them. I wrote this book in 30 days, by the way. You know, I think it turns out it's 300 pages. I wrote it in 30 days. And the reason I wrote the book in 30 days was to demonstrate that by applying the same rules, I can pull off what, can, what most people would consider to be impossible. But I've applied the rules over the 30 days to deliver the book which tells you how you should live your life for the rest of your life. And because I say, you know, the messenger is the message. There's, no, there's many of these guys on Instagram, you need to do this to be successful. They ain't doing shit, right? They, they're good at talking. If I stand up there and do the same, I'm an empty vessel. I thought by writing the book in 30 days, I'm proving it in that time. It was horrible. It was tough. There were times I wanted to give up, but I know follow the rules, stay. I give myself a number of days to write. I've got to write X amount of words. You do it, you follow it. There's resolve. I still lived my life. There was pushback. There was issues, but there was commitment. I believed. So I applied all the rules and lo and behold, in 30 days, I've banged out 300 pages. Is it any good? Well, that's a matter for you to decide. It's probably not the best book on the planet and I'll hold my hands up. It doesn't have to be. It's still better than the book I didn't write. And many of us will talk ourselves out of doing shit because we want it to be so perfect. It's a lie. It's in our heads. We're just selling it to ourselves. It always got to be so perfect before I start. No, it don't start, man. You know, my uh, MD in the office, he was always, he kept on banging on to me, you know, I'm going to start trading. I'm going to start doing this. I want to get fit. And I'd had enough of it one day. I said, all right, go, let's go. What do you mean? Go on then. What do you mean? Start now. He's in his suit. I said, start now. Get on the floor, start now. Just don't talk about it, do it. If I'm going to do something, do it. Don't talk about it. If you're going to do it, do it. Many of us don't do it. All you need to do to start a miracle, start the bloody miracle. But we'd rather talk about it, romance it, fantasize about it. Talk to my mates, talk to our mum, tell everybody about all this great stuff that we're going to do. And naturally, many people don't see it for you. They're going to talk you out of it. Don't talk to them. Get on with it. And when you start doing it, you'll realize it's not as hard as you thought. That's where that self-belief comes in. When I was uh, 24, I bought this place. I had a river apartment, right? And um, I was moving furniture in and I put a hole in the wall. It all started with a hole in the wall where I really moved on with my, my self-belief. And I thought, you know, I'm going to fix this hole in the wall. I'd never done anything DIY-wise. So I fixed this hole in the wall. This, man, that was the best hole you've ever imagined. It was fixed perfectly. You couldn't even see it. I thought, if I can do that, maybe I can lay tiles. Then I'd lay tiles, you know, and then I could do plumbing. So now, I mean, as I'm, I'm a barrister, right? I can, I could, I could build you a house with my own. I can plaster, I can do electrics, I can plumb, I can tile, I can do whatever. I've built cars, I can weld, I can TIG weld, I can MIG weld, I can fabricate, I can do anything. And I've got this thing, you know, where I'm more able than my label. We're all more able than our label. You know, you talk about ADHD. And I thought I won't jump in then because when people have these labels, they let these labels make room for them to, to fail. That's your superpower. I was going to say this. I think, I think 
having like dyslexia. Like I said, I only found this out three years ago because someone put me through a test. Mm. Funnily enough, it was a barrister's friend, a lady called Narita Barra. She's a Q, Q, QC, and um, oh, I know Narita. She was saying she was yeah. she was chatting to me. And she was like, "She's small, yeah, Asian lady," yeah, yeah, and yeah, she yeah. was like, uh, "You're dyslexic," and I was like, "What?" She said, "You're dyslexic." I can tell by like like what she said. You you get a lot of people to do stuff for you. You don't even realize, and that's what a lot of dyslexic people do. Mm. You you you're very good at um, delegating. Delegating, mm. and she said, "If you do this test, it it will come back mm. what you truly are." Mm. And thankfully, because I was dyslexic, it's allowed me to home in on other skills. Mm-hmm. Had I been good at doing stuff for myself, mm-hmm. it wouldn't have allowed me mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. more business-like. Mm-hmm. So I do believe in your... Your weakness. Weakness so is weakness. That, actually your superpower. It is your superpower, 100%. You know, I hear about people who've got ADHD. You've got energy, man. <laughs> you've got energy. You've got more energy than me. I'm at a weakness. You know, and this is what I'll be saying to these kids... Don't let somebody limit your, you know, no one rises to low expectations. What we're doing is we're telling these kids, you've got ADHD, so therefore you can't. I'd be saying, you've got ADHD, so man, you can. Yeah. Not, you've got dyslexia, so you can't. You've got dyslexia, so you can. You're black, not because you can't. You're black, because you, so that means you can. You're old, which means you can. You're female, which means you can. And the memo is so busy telling us what we can't do because of our characteristics, not recognising what you can do. God knows what I've got. I ain't normal, man. You know, I'm not normal. But I don't need it. I don't care. Whatever I am, I am. Because I know that everyone, no one is all good, no one's all bad. I have real strengths. I have real weaknesses. Where I'm weak, I will turn it into a strength. You know, being black was my superpower in reality. You know, I stand up in a courtroom. And I would link, you know, I'd be up against, you know, those who have got plums in their mouth, members of the jury and all that sort of stuff. And I'll stand up and I'll say to the jury, you know, to the jury, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you know, you're not going to hear any polished pronunciation from me. This is me in my closing speech, my open lines. I'll say, you're not going to get any privileged background elocution. But what you're going to get from me is Shepherds Bush, born and bred reality. Let's go. Right. So all of a sudden the jury thinking, right, he's one of us. They can't do that. When I'm cross-examining Patois, they can't do that. When I'm cross-examining a, a road you, <laughs> you know, ease, whatever, whatever, and I can talk to him exactly the same way, they can't do that. So why does the kid from the street think he can't compete? Of course you can't compete because you're better. But they're not going to tell you you're better. I am. You know, and that's the difference. So the listeners who have had difficult upbringings, I'm saying, man, that's your strength. You've got that hustle muscle. You've got that gangster in you you know in me yeah of course i did the book stuff but i've got ghetto <laughs> you know and they say ghetto you right you know it's still there and if you can marry the two know when to tap into what you've got you're more resourceful you know so don't let the world tell you what you can't do you've got something special in you and that's what i'm there trying to promote if nothing else would be my legacy if i can get young people to start believing in themselves because of where they've come from that's their superpower, and I've done my job, man. Yeah, yeah, you know? powerful stuff. 18 months from now, you said you're going to have a company that is going to be a billion pound mm-hmm. plus, mm-hmm. and I definitely believe in you when you say that because you say mm-hmm. with conviction, you've got mm-hmm. the energy behind it. But why is that important? Like, is it is it the status? Yeah. Is it what the product can do for your, your area of expertise? Mm. 
is it the money? Mm. You know, is is all the trimmings of yeah. of having a billion pound company? Yeah. You mentioned Rolls Royces earlier mm. and stuff mm. like that. Yeah. Um, tell me more about that mission. Why is that important? Good question. And it's all of the above. Um, life is short. Life is short. And if you can have a nice life, why would you choose to have a bad life, right? Money gives you opportunities. And who wants to argue with me with that? They're crazy. I've never heard anyone argue for a pay cut. I'm leaving my job because I want to get less money. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Never. Right, exactly. But yet still people say, oh no, money's bad. So why are you going for a pay rise then? Money's not bad. Money makes sense, right? With money, you can do so much more. You know, I was very impressed, again, as a young guy by Andrew Carnegie, who spent the first half of his life making as much money as he could and giving it away in the second part. That's exactly what I want to do. I want to create academies where I can back young people from the inner cities and I can put my money behind them in their enterprises and make them fly to show the rest of the world that these kids have got what it's got, what, what, it, what it takes. So it's very important for me to have the resource to do that. I can't do that if I'm skint, right? So there's nothing to be bragging about because you've got no money. I just don't see the sense in that. It may not sound palatable. Of course I want money because I can do things with money. And I think everyone, I think it's selfish. I think everyone has an obligation to go out there and make as much as you can, provided that when you get it, you help others. You know, because I, I think, you know, we live in a, it's a capitalist country, man. You need to have money to do stuff. And when you've got money, you can, you can, you can make choices. So that's the first reason. Second reason is, if I can show the kids out there that a little black boy from Shepherd's Bush can create a billion pound company, go into state school with a single parent, they think they can too. They can too. Hmm. So that's why it's important. And it's not going to be one billion, by the way. Why well, have one, right? It's that same thing. Five million, 50 million. I've got a number in my head and it definitely ain't one billion and it won't be one billion either. Remember where, remember where you heard it first, right? So it's very important for me to, 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 for kids to see that because it's one thing to talk it. As I said, all these Instagram guys with their quotes, this is hollow. When I say I've done it and guess what? I'm not special because I'm not. You know, that's the one thing I do say. I speak to all these kids. There's nothing special about me. Nothing. And I'm not saying it to be modest. I struggle waking up in the morning. I have to talk to myself every single morning to get out of bed to exercise. I have to talk to myself to do the right things. I have to talk to myself to not eat bread. I have to talk to myself. So it's this ongoing, constant battle. There's gunfire going off in my head right now. Because I want to do X, but I know I've got to do Y. It's not no magic pill. I'm not some superhero. I know what the rules are. And I force myself on a daily basis to do the things I have to do. I don't get it right every day. I make mistakes just like everyone else. I'm frightened just like everyone else. I'm scared shitless. <laughs> That's the truth about as I take the next step. You know, I'm about to be the sponsor at Queen's Park Rangers Football Club. I'm the shirt sponsor for the next season. All right. I don't like publicity. You know, I've been an introvert. I didn't have an Instagram profile until January. I don't like the publicity. I hate publicity. But after I had the day I almost didn't die, that didn't kill me. And I wasn't frightened. I'm not scared anymore. Mm. That's the difference. So if I can just get the message out to these kids and everyone else out there that I am, I'm not special. I struggle just like everyone else, but I overcome that. And that's the thing. You know, I think there are many people who give these talks and appear on these podcasts and stuff. A lot of them, they, they big up themselves too much. 
without letting people realize their weaknesses, their, that they are frail. But I, I know what I need to do. I keep on top of myself. I keep on top of my mindset. I do the difficult things because I know what I need to do, right? So that for me, with a billion pound, multi-billion pound company will get the focus and the attention and then I can give the message. That's why, that's why. And a billion's a nice number, right? It gets people's attention. Millionaire, who cares anymore? Everyone's a millionaire. A billionaire, people start looking. And if they can look at me and they realize I'm just like them, I've done it, man. I've done well, it. Billionaires... Uh, for getting governments and politicians, billionaires really run the world, right? So um, if you can get into that club and then ex excel, then uh, fantastic achievement. Uh, part of the reason why I'm asking is because I'm not, a, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there or people on social media who are quite coy when it comes down to money. You know, they talk about building billion-dollar companies easy, building all these assets, but when it comes down to, like, personal enjoying money, they're a little bit, in the UK, a little bit afraid of talking about it. Mm. In America, oh, they're opposite. very, you know, happy to, to share. Yeah. And I think it's important to also talk about enjoying your money because at the end of the day, money and enjoying your money is almost like a middle for all the good work that you've done mm -hmm. for your clients, customers, mm -hmm. and the service you're giving to the community. Mm. Yeah. If you if having a Rolls Royce or a Lamborghini or whatever mm. is 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 a reflection of the value you've given yep. to your marketplace. Mm. Um, you know, part of the reason why we've done the whole Gumball Rally in a Lamborghini Aventador from Toronto down to Miami is because it was almost like, yeah, I'm experiencing life because we had a really good year last year. You know, we had a really good month. We're serving, uh, serv servicing the clients really well. We're growing as a brand. Yep. And you know what? This is a bit of a business trip, but also at the same time, a personal luxury yeah. trip that we're going to do. Yeah. What kind of things do you, do you enjoy? From the cars, watches, trips, you know, talk to me about some of the personal stuff. Um. The, it's going to sound really pretty rubbish here. I love building cars. I love playing around. I love fabricating. I'm in the garage every day, right? So yeah, I've had sexy cars and got, got, still got cars. But the things I really love, if I could be in my garage all day long, every day, making stuff, fixing cars, improving stuff, fabricating, that's where my most joy is. So I want to get, you know, a private jet and all that stuff. Yeah, I'd love to do that, right? Because I think, and, it, and that will happen as well, probably, because... This model, I will take this model abroad. You know, there's interest in the US at the moment on my model and we're doing, you know, we're looking at stuff there. But if I can get, move around the US quickly, move around the world quickly, I can do a lot more deals. And I think that for me will say, do you know what? Yeah, you, you probably have half made it here. Um, so that's things I really enjoy now. It's simple things, you know, I've, as, as a 24-year-old, I was driving, you know, I, I, about, I had about a million quid's worth of cars on the drive as a 27-year-old. So I've had the, the cars. Do you know what I mean? It's like, so it doesn't really impress me anymore. You know, I have no watch on. I don't even, it doesn't really do that much for me anymore, if I'm honest with you, that sort of stuff. And I think now it's more a case of, it sounds really, really stupid, but the dream for me is if I could invest in kids and watch their businesses grow. And I'll have a stake in them companies. That's kind of generational wealth. Yeah. That excites the hell out of me, man. So, yeah, so I don't really do, you know, I don't really do the flash stuff anymore. I've, you know, I've got the cars and I love supercars. Never really had a supercar. I used to, all my, you know, my cars are tinted windows and my head's down and so on. So I used to be a big introvert. I was a really flash kit when I was sort of coming through. And over the years, I kind of went back into myself and I've had to come out, force myself to come out. But stuff that I enjoy, yeah, would be 
just tinkering around with cars, playing with cars, even buying cars doesn't even really that excite me, if I'm honest with you. Um, so I'm quite boring in that in that respect, you know what I mean? But I do want a jet. Yeah. Yeah, not that I've given it much for, but a G550 would do me nicely. Yeah, I would love it. I love a jet. I love a jet. You know what? I've read Steve Jobs' book called Becoming Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he actually convinced me the reason why buying a jet or becoming very, very wealthy is very important because he said that, what he didn't say these exact words, but being wealthy gives you choices in life and having more choices than less choices is clearly better. I mean, if you were to go into a theme park and I said to you, enjoy this theme park, but you can only go on half the rides, you'd be like, well, why the fuck can't I go? Because you're not allowed to. Yeah. But if I said you can go on all of them, you'd be like, brilliant. You know, yeah. I, I, world's my oyster, I can do whatever I want. That's what life's like when you've got a lot of money. You can do anything you want. Totally. You, you, you're not limited to certain things. Totally. But when he was diagnosed with cancer for the first ever time, there was, I can't remember it for word for word because I've read the book about six years ago, but he said that he had to get to, from San Francisco to another part of uh, America, which would have taken hours on a normal conventional flight. He wouldn't have made the appointment and therefore that was kind of make or break for his life. Because he had a private jet, he was managed to get to the private jet, fly to his place in an hour or so yeah. and see, have a consultation, do the operation, whatever yeah. it may be, and it saved yeah. his life. Yeah, yeah. And he said, what it came down to is the time. There you are. The money gave me the time. There you are. Shorten the time period. Yeah. Therefore, it yeah. was life-changing for me. And, and that's what money will do for you. Absolutely. And you know, in a private jet, you can never rationalize a private jet but it buys you time. It buys you time. And I think as I'm getting older, you know, I'm starting to appreciate the importance of time. I don't have time to mess around. And if I can move around the world quickly, this is me justifying a bit of man maths here, but if I can move around the world quickly and do what I need to do, that's got to make sense. And it, you know, and as I said, it does sort of make you feel like, yeah, I'm actually up there and sitting at the top table, but it's about time right now. And I think if I can do anything to speed up time and i think money can speed up time if i can speed up time for these young kids and i keep talking about young kids even i do you know is i build homes i don't even like to use the word housing but i build homes right but if i can speed up with these kids who are 16 instead of them kicking around for the next 20 years to discover hold on a minute i've actually got something here if i can make them realize that at 16 can you imagine what the world would look like if you've got all these inner city kids who are inspiring the others who are coming up can you imagine what the world would look like in the next sort of 20, 30 years? Yeah. It's got to be a great place. It's got to be a better place. And if I can have a part in that and make money in the process, you can't go wrong. You know, I've got this saying, you can't sprinkle the perfume of happiness on other people without getting a few drops on yourself, right? If I can bring these young people through, it's going to increase my wealth. The wealth is, is fine. Do you know what I mean? But more importantly, it's making the world a better place for my grandkids, my great grandkids. And it's just... If somehow young people start to believe in themselves and not listen to the bullshit, right, and also not live up to the memo, that's my work done. It's going to give me wealth. With my, you know, my my model, my property model, is delivering a luxury, affordable homes. No one's done it. Why? Because it's not a sexy business. I've made it sexy. I'm going to make it sexy, and I'm going to make money from it by doing the right thing. And again, if I can demonstrate that you can become extremely wealthy by doing the right thing, again, that's an example. Many people think, you know, if you're gonna do business, you have gotta be hard-nosed and you have gotta steal and be ruthless. No, you don't. Do the flipping right thing. Do the right thing and you can make 
billions. That's an example. The messenger is the message, right? So, you know, it's not Saint Roy. I'm not on some crusade here to do the right thing. Of course, there is a, a selfish commercial interest, but that commercial gain can be had by doing the right thing. And that's an important message for people to understand. And I'm not saying I'm going to hide my wealth because others don't have it. I'm saying I'm going to show you my wealth and you can come have some too because you should be sitting with me. It's not a preserve for the those who've gone to the elite schools or who've had the best education. It's a preserve for everybody. If you just reach down inside yourself, grow up here, get out there, take a chance and go for it. What you got to lose? What have you got to lose? What, you know, truly, what have you got to lose? Mm. And many people don't. They're just too frightened. There's no reward in comfort. If you really want to get out there, those who dare to, to put themselves in the ring, you can, there's going to be a winner. There's going to be a loser. When you lose, cool, man. You know, there's another part in my book where I talk about, there's a major issue. I, mean, I, I, I was due to have this multi-million pound payout um, for a deal. And I spent the money already, literally. And the day before, no, in fact, the day after I should have got the money through and signed the contracts, the fund said to me, you know what? We can't do it anymore. We can't do the deal anymore. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you fucking mean? <laughs> you know, I spent it. I'd moved house. I'd put the kids in school. I'd taken on more developments. And all of a sudden, no, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Only joking. Couldn't do it anymore. Man, that, that re I really had to dig deep on my rules. Play over, you know, um, the, the, the don't quit. You know, things go wrong as they sometimes will. The road you're trudging seems all uphill. The whole I was reciting that all day long, all day long, all day long. I needed it, man, because I was on the ropes. I'm, I'm in the ring. And all that I remembered was, you know, how you react when you lose determines how long it'll be till you win. How you react when you lose determines how long it'll be till you win. I had to keep telling myself this stuff. So and this is what I talk about going into autopilot. And I knew what I had to do. Even though I didn't want to do it, I struggled with it, but I did it. Guess who it was who came back and gave me the hundreds of millions afterwards? Same people. Same people. How easy would it have been to me to say, you F in this, you F in that, blah, blah, blah. Just had lunch with them next door just now. I've got all the money in the world if they want, you know, if I can spend it as much as I want. And this is where I say, you know, all these little one-liners, I've learned them along the way and they've held me in good stead. Yeah. You know, so it's just people just have to trust you know, when they read in these books, if you've read one self-help book, you're going to read the same thing time and time again. But all you're doing when you both go and buy the next one is you haven't really listened to what you read in the first one. You're just trying to see it, see if you, someone can give you a magic nugget. There's no magic bullet for this stuff. This stuff is so simple, but it's not easy. It's simple, not easy. It's simple to, as Jim Rowe would say, apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? Most people choose the Hershey bar as he says, instead of the apple. It's easy to say no Hershey bar, I want apple, but it's easy not to do. That's the problem with this stuff. What's easy to do is equally easy not to do. And the resistance will pull you down the road of not to. And I think it's Jim uh, uh, Les Brown who talks about, you know, like, it's like territory. Success is like territory. The moment you stop pursuing the good or stop pursuing what you want, what you don't want starts to take over. The moment you stop weed in the garden, the weeds come back. The moment you stop pursuing your health, bad health comes back. The moment you stop revising on your exams, the lack of knowledge comes back. So it, most people have got that messed up. They think the status quo is a good place 
and they can just stay there. No, you have to keep fighting to maintain. You've got to fight even harder to move forward. Simple, but not easy. Hmm. And this is where my book, I hope I can put it out there by saying this stuff is so simple. Just follow the rules. Stop being an arsehole. Stop complaining. Oh, it's because I'm black. Oh, it's because I'm a woman. Oh, it's because I'm too old. Oh, it's because they don't like me. No, it's because you flipping gave up. That's the reality. I don't care. It's 20p. Go phone someone who cares. You know, that's, that's, my, that's my approach. You know, you, 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 don't, don't tell me about what's happened. You know, I always say your rear view mirror is this big. Your windscreen's that big. I don't give a shit what's behind you. All right, let's acknowledge it, but let's look what's in front of you. Move forward, grow a pair, get out there, do what you got to do. Don't let anyone talk you out of it. Don't talk yourself out of it, more importantly. And whatever you're thinking, multiply it, go big. Because guess what? You're probably going to pull it off. Good message, mate. So uh, the next five or 10 years from you for you, yeah. I know you said 18 months, billion, yeah. you're going to push on more yeah. than that. Yeah. There's obviously going to be some great stuff along the way. There's going to yeah. be some challenges along yeah. the way. Where can we expect to see you, Roy, in the next five or 10 years from now? I think next five, 10 years, I'd like to have my foundation set up. Um, I'd like to have made a real dent in the affordable housing sector around the world. Um, but my foundation will be up and you'll see young people starting to believe. I think, you know, my book, if it goes well, I'm going to write another one anyway, even if it doesn't go well. You know, but I think I might, I don't know. I might, I, I, that book took me 30 days. I probably should have done it in three weeks, to be honest with you. I probably could have done it quicker. So I let myself down there. So um, next five, 10 years, that's where I'll be. Um, I'll be making a difference. Will I still be in this sector? I don't know. I imagine we'll go public at some point and they'll probably kick me off the board as they usually do. If that happens, so be it. You know, I'll go and do something else. But what it could be Hollywood, it could be running a race team, who knows? It could be anything. But whatever it is, it will probably, if I get to stay at Convivia, you know, I'd love to do that because there's so much more we can do. So much more we can do. If I don't, who knows what I'll be doing because I just think that you're better off doing something you, you have no knowledge about. You know, a lot of people think I can't do this because I don't know. I don't believe that. I think you can do it if you don't know because you're going to have to learn. And then when you learn how to do it, you're not going to be confined by the way it's always done. That's why I'm able to exploit this sector because I'm not from the housing sector. So I don't know the rules. <laughs> so with me, I'm just doing what's right. I don't care. The convention means nothing to me because yeah. I don't know what it is. So I'm doing what automatically seems right to me. But those who are already in it, they won't because they know you can't do that. It won't work. I don't know that. I'm ignorant. So anything I go into, who knows? Just watch the space, man. But what one thing for sure, young people will be out there and they'll be flying. Where can people find you? I'm on Instagram, apparently. Uh, Roy underscore Legister. I've got a YouTube channel. Roy Legister, I think. I don't, yeah, Roy Legister. I've got a book that didn't get the memo. I think it's being released in September. And the reason they haven't released it yet, I call it the media mafia, my, the, the PR guys and all that around me. They haven't released it yet because we've got the QPR deal coming out, um, being announced next week. Um, so there's a lot of PR stuff around that. There's a TV program I did with... Uh, you know, Becky, Becky's also in the room. That comes out later in the year. Um, so that's pushed my book down the queue because we can't control the release dates on these other activities. So they have to work with that. So the book don't get a didn't get a memo. I don't care if you don't buy it, borrow it, get a bootleg copy. I don't care. I'm not doing this for money. I couldn't give a monkeys if I didn't make a penny from it. Did you get the message? That's the only question for me. Get the book somehow. I don't care. Bootleg it. I really don't care. I'm self-published. I'll probably get sued by someone for it. Maybe I can't sue myself. I really don't care how they get the book. Just get the book and read it. Whether they like it, take the nuggets out of it, 
what works for them, but just be brave, man. Be bold and go and own your life. I've got one more question. Mm. When I started my first company when I was 24 years of age, it was a sales company. And I'm really excited to ask you because I feel like I'm going to get a really good answer. Mm. I come up with a mantra. Reason being is because going back to what I said earlier, the definition of a sale is the transfer of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. So to keep the predominantly at the time men on the floor, there was a few females, but it was predominantly rum, you know, not rum, mm -hmm. had a lot of alpha type males on there, mm -hmm. you know, geezers and who was like walking around. I come up with this mantra, which was, is be happy, never content. Mm -hmm. Be happy, never content. Mm -hmm. I've got my own interpretation, my own reason why I come up with that. Mm. I had a message that I was portraying over to the, the staff mm. and they understood it. But if I were to ask you, Roy Legister, what does be happy, never content mean to you? Never content, but I can deal with quite easily because I'm never content. Um, you've never done your best work. There's always better to be done. My dog Tyson, if I throw something, he'll run as fast as he can. The tree in my back garden, I bet you it can't grow any taller. The plant, the weeds in my garden can't be any taller right now. I can be much bigger. So can you, right? And and we don't, we never achieve our potential. And that's when I talk about happy to die in the process because I think one day I'll reach my potential. When I, you know, when they're throwing dirt on me and if I died in my run, do you know what? I, I hit my potential. But I never die in my run. I've never died in an endeavor. So I can never be content because I'm not maxing out, right? So I'm never content. Ever, 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 never will be. Am I happy? I'm learning to be happier now. I think it's important. People talk, you know, and it's my MD is very good at this. He's always reminding me, let's pause, you know, we've achieved this, you know, and I'm not, I'm always like moving on to the next thing. As I said to you, I didn't throw a barbecue when I raised hundreds of millions of quid. Why? Because I expected it to happen. You know, people be like, oh, guess what I did? It's all on Instagram. I didn't put it on Instagram. Why? Because I expected it to happen. I would have put it on there if I didn't. So, I, I need to be happier with these little milestones. Am I happy? Yes, I'm, 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 I'd say I'm more content than I am happy, I suppose. But happy is a difficult one to define, right? I'm trying to enjoy the journey more than the destination. I don't believe in just enjoy the journey because what's the point? You don't just set off on a journey for the sake of a journey. You know, you need to have a destination, right? So when I hit the destination, I should be happy. But because I'm not content, I'm going again. Mm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I'm learning now to be more content and happier. And that's really been a leap over the last year, I'd say. Just trying to be in the moment and think, yeah, do you know what? It's actually quite good. And I must say, the last six months, nine months, I've really worked on it and I do feel happy. But I'm definitely not content. Good so stuff. Couldn't agree with you more, man. Thank you very much for your time. I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast episode. Um, Please uh, follow Roy and also subscribe to my YouTube channel. Share it with your friends and family. And always re remember to be happy, never content. And thank nice you, one. sir. All right, man. Bless. Nice one. Nice Cheers. One. Cheers. Thank you.